The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, By the times. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we're gonna go live on YouTube uh, and we're live. It is Wednesday, December 22nd, 5.04 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Radley Belko on um, to talk about, I swear to God, I really thought this was gonna be um, a story about the Clintons or something. <laughs> because uh, it's called Big Trouble in Little Rock, uh, although it's a it's a pretty great headline. Um, but uh, Radley, welcome back to the show. It is great to see you. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about the story. Um, yeah. Grab me on. Be back. Good to see you. So tell us about it. What what, what damage have you done? <laughs> uh, well, this is... So uh... I should say that this came out in The Intercept uh, this week, right? Um, yeah. And I'm going to, I put a link to it in the Twitter feed, but I will drop a link to it here too. So, uh, yeah, so this talking. is a story I've been working on for about 18 months now. Um, I don't think I've ever interviewed more people for a story. I think we had over 40 sources and thousands of pages of documents. Um, and basically the, the gist of it is um, uh, back in 2018, I wrote a piece about um, how Little Rock, the Little Rock Police Department was conducting these really violent uh, no knock raids that were actually illegal um because i reviewed a lot of the search warrants and i won't get into the law uh too much but basically they were violating a supreme court case that said you had to be very specific about the the evidence that you cited to justify the use of a no knock uh warrant and they were just cutting and pasting language and then they were using like explosives to literally like blow the doors off of people's homes wow um so i wrote about this and uh, it, it became a factor in the mayoral race one of the candidates um, had already been running on a police reform platform and uh, kind of took up the no-knock cause also. He won, ended up being the first black elected mayor of Little Rock since Reconstruction. And he appointed a, this uh, reformist um, black police chief named Keith Humphrey uh, to kind of carry out his, his reform agenda. And since then, Humphrey has just been hit left and right and every other way. Um, with what kind of reform agenda can you like be more specific like i uh, mean just because there's so many sure um you know these were actually pretty mild reforms as far as that kind of thing goes um you know one was a reform of the no-knock policy and they that actually worked they went from uh 57 no-knock raids the year before humphrey took over to i think he said he signed four in the two years he's been there um, but also, uh, he ordered a top-down review of the department and its um, sort of personnel procedure uh, procedures, uh, looking into issues like racial profiling, use of force, de-escalation policy, uh, and then a few of the things Humphrey did um, that were sort of more internal-facing actually sparked even more controversy within the department. Uh, so he instituted, for example, a known, an anti-nepotism policy. Uh, so you had in Little Rock, you had. Uh, officers who uh, were working side by side with spouses who had direct relatives in their chain of command, like sons and daughters and brothers. You had twin brothers working side by side in the same unit, all of which is really that's confusing. Bad. Is that's so confusing? It's confusing, but it's also just bad sort of 
policy and bad for morale within the department. Right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of a lot of these policies were very, very sort of common sense. I talked to other leasing experts who said, you know, this is not even this shouldn't even be controversial. But the problem in Little Rock is that the police union, the FOP there, is really powerful and has kind of run the department for decades. Um, and so the the article is it, it looks at the accusations. So basically, when Humphrey took over, almost from the start, uh, he had a uh, well, definitely from the very first day, he had a controversial police shooting awaiting him. And his internal affairs department fought, found that this offer, officer violated LRPD policy, which says that you can't fire. Not only can you not fire into a moving vehicle, but if you have the option of getting out of the way, uh, you have to get out of the way. You can't put yourself in the direct line of a vehicle and then claim that you had no choice but to use deadly force to defend yourself or the vehicle would have hit you. Um, and in this case, the officer basically starts firing at this vehicle from the, from the driver's side and then positions himself in front of the vehicle. And as the vehicle sort of slowly rolls toward him, he climbs up onto the hood and continues firing through the windshield and, and kills this guy. And so Humphrey no kidding. Up. After like all of that firing into the yeah, driver's right. side, that's like kind of insane. When there's a passenger in the car who could have been hurt, there was somebody in a nearby car that the officer's bullets struck. Uh, and this officer also had a history. Um, and so Humphrey, you know, his internal affairs department determined this officer violated policy. And so Humphrey fired him. And that just inspired this massive backlash from the department almost immediately. And there was a, a hearing by the, what's called the Civil Service Commission, and that, that's who you sort of appeal to if you're a police officer and you get fired. And at that uh, hearing, a lot of officers testified in defense of this officer. Um, they were really upset that he was fired. And because of that, uh, the reforms that Humphrey then tried to implement afterward were recast by his critics within the department, not as sensible reforms for a troubled department, but as retaliation as uh you know him sort of taking it out on these officers who contradicted his firing this officer so for example one sort of common sense reform he did was he rotated all of his command staff to different divisions and this is a thing police departments are supposed to do every few years because you don't want people building little fiefdoms you want to get sort of new blood in different divisions and you also from the standpoint of the officers you want to get them lots of experience in different areas because that helps their careers when they try to you know, move on to other departments or move up and get promoted and this was cast not as these sort of sensible reforms but that he was rotating these officers these commanders because they had testified against them and this is retaliation um, and then he starts getting these lawsuits one after another in the end i think there were seven lawsuits followed filed by at least 12 different officers uh he gets a a really damaging letter from his command staff 10 of the 13 members of, the, of his command staff signed this letter saying that uh, he had created a, a hostile work environment and that the, they couldn't work for him anymore. Um, and, you know, this becomes pretty damning. And this momentum starts to build against this guy. So, you know, I, I because I had done some previous reporting in Little Rock, Humphrey's attorney came to me and said, you know, you got to look at this. I, I, a lot of these accusations are just completely flimsy. And sure enough, as, as I started looking into the lawsuits and some of the claims in the lawsuits, um, they were just... I mean, it was clear that they were not designed to win in court. They were designed to sort of build public momentum for this this chief's ouster. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one from the story. So there was one. Uh, there was a uh, two uh, female officers sued Humphrey and claimed uh, retaliation, but also gender discrimination. And in the lawsuit, their attorneys points to this one particular incident where a, a black woman officer claimed that her supervisor had been. 
uh, basically sort of harassing her and had created a hostile work environment for her. And in the lawsuit, it says that Humphrey acknowledges that this was a hostile work environment. And yet, instead of doing anything about it, he simply transferred this officer. And so the implication is that he tolerated this hostile work environment, right? Well, so I actually called the officer who, who this was in reference to. And she was, she said, when she saw the lawsuit, she was livid because they had completely mischaracterized what happened. Now, this is somebody that the lawsuit names as sort of an ally, right? And she said, you know, actually what happened was she did file a complaint uh, and Humphrey was the only one who took it seriously. And in fact, the assistant chief uh, who was suing Humphrey in that lawsuit uh, basically faulted her for the for the hostile work environment and said, you know, why are you here if you're, if you're facing these kinds of, you know, you should transfer or you should quit. Um, and so, you know, when you when you have a lawsuit that names uh, specifically names someone who's going to back you up uh, in these accusations, and then I call that person. Yeah, you they, you ah. get into kind of Rule Eleven territory where you're you're making making allegations not in right. that are that you know to be not effectively or the slightest bit of or the slightest bit of due diligence would have revealed, um, and. And, you know, I found this over and over again. There was this accusation in a, in a separate lawsuit by the same lawyer that uh, Humphrey had transferred these two officers be, as retaliation because one of them testified in contradiction to him at this hearing, and that as added humiliation, he had notified them of their transfer by text message in the middle of the night. Well, uh, I, you know, I, I can you remind me what these were filed under, by the way? Like uh, under what? Like uh, were these like were these Arkansas. with? Under Arkansas state law, uh, basically. As Arkansas a, state. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was what I was wondering if they were federal law, if they were like under chapter, like under yeah. chapter, like seven or something, but yeah. Okay. But no, and, that would be like hiring and firing. But like, I was just curious if there was any of that right. too. Uh, well there, yeah, there are a lot of EEOC complaints against Humphrey as well. Um, but you know, in this case, did they claim that he, te he, he purposely notified them of their transfer by text in the middle of the night to, to, you know, humiliate them, which, you know, I'm not sure that notifying somebody by text in the middle of the night is 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 a grievable offense in any case. But uh, but even then, uh, it wasn't true because I saw the text messages and Humphrey had actually asked his assistant chief, who the other assistant chief who was suing him, to tell the officers in person and to let them know he was there if they wanted to talk about it. She then delegated that to somebody who notified them by text in the middle of the night and admitted so in, in a text. So this attorney in one lawsuit makes this allegation. Uh, on behalf of his clients that his client in another suit uh, is actually responsible for and that he should have known. Um, but it actually gets a lot worse. Um, one of the biggest allegations against Humphrey is that he was sexually harassing women. And there is a text message that I got a hold of from the uh, female assistant chief who's suing him, uh, which was sent sort of late at night, I think it was like 12.30 in the morning. Um, and it basically is to five women, four white, one black, saying, you know, I understand that Humphrey has said sexually inappropriate things to all of you. We need to all come forward and make these allegations. Well, the one black woman on that list was kind of this shocked. Is the, this is where the story opens, right? Right. Was shocked because she had nothing to accuse him of. And in fact, she had never heard of any of this. And, you know, she said, so she did not come forward. The rest of them responded to the text that they would come forward with their own allegations. Uh, and she... Uh, you know, ends up uh, over the next few days, she says she gets pressured by these other women on the text to come forward, even though she tells them she's got nothing to accuse them of. She ends up filing her own complaint with HR, but she gets a call from HR 
also sort of asking her if she has Wait, any she, she files a complaint against Humphrey or against no, no, she files people a complaint who are against the other her. women who are pressuring her, right? That complaint goes no. So, and like, this is, is this where the line, like you have to get on the lawsuit train comes from, which is like one of the best, most sinister lines that I've ever heard. Like, like, I mean, honestly, like, it's just like the, the use of the law to coerce and intimidate people. And like, well, but there's also, there's also a really um, important kind of racial component to this, which is you have basically a bunch of white women accusing a black chief of sexually harassing them and there's a lot of evidence well actually it, it, we know now that I, I the report that the city uh the investigation for the the report for the city's investigation is is sealed but i know people who have seen it and none of the accusations rise to the level of sexual harassment in fact there are things like one of the women had a uh, hispanic boyfriend who she referred to around the office as my mexican and Humphrey asked her to stop doing that. And she said, well, he doesn't mind. And Humphrey said, well, that's not appropriate, even if he doesn't mind. And she filed a, a, a hostile work environment against him for that. That was one of the accusations. Um, the others were these sort of innocuous phrases he would use, like take one for the team and tricking fund, which is sort of an African-American phrase of a, it's like a fund a husband keeps set aside for, you know, golfing or poker that his wife doesn't know about. Uh, and these were all ca- characterized by his critics as sexual harassment. Um, and this has echoes to the first uh, Little Rock police chief, uh, black police chief, uh, who was also a reformer, who was also uh, chased out of office by the FOP, also in part with allegations of sexual impropriety with a white woman. Uh, and so you get these, um, you know, there there are, and this is, this is what bothered this sergeant, this black sergeant who got the text messages. He's like, you know, this is still Arkansas. Uh, there are, you know, she said, I'm from the country. There are white supremacist groups around here. You know, people hear that this black police chief is harassing, sexually harassing white women, you know, that puts him in danger. And she thought she had to sort of, you know, blow the whistle about this. And so that's kind of where it starts. Um, and it all kind of goes downhill from there. And we basically, then from there, the article gets into a history of race uh, and racism at the Little Rock Police Department. And I ended up interviewing over 20 current and former black officers who just talked about kind of the systemic racism there that black officers were passed over promotions, they training opportunities, but also they were any black officer who sort of spoke out about racial profiling, about use of force, um, they were sort of punished. They were stopped in their tracks, their careers went nowhere. Whereas if you were a black officer who sort of did what the union wanted, uh, you know, you, you could be okay. You could kind of survive as a police officer. Um, but I'll I'll let you ask some questions now. Yeah, no. So I have a ton of questions. Um, you kind of told us how you came to this story because um, you were covering stuff in Little Rock, and that's kind of like. But um, you did this digging for like eighteen months. Um, was did the story of what I'm curious about is like did it take eighteen months to like like dig up the history of what had happened or was it happening as you were reporting it? Like both. what, which, what, okay. Yeah. Both. So it was a lot of, you know, it was six months of interviewing people, digging up documents, going through, you know, emails, making open records requests, all of that. Um, but then, you know, as I'm reporting it, it, it continues to evolve. And so to give you one example of the court, while I was doing the story, the city had hired um, this outside investigator to look into some of these allegations against Humphrey and it was a very bizarre hire. It was this woman at Arkansas Tech who was a marketing professor. 
And, you know, she had some HR experience, but she had no law enforcement background at all. And, and you know, the, a lot of the things she was being asked to investigate were whether uh, Humphrey's firing of a particular officer was uh, uh, justified or whether it was some sort of retaliation or discrimination. And, you know, at one point she emails the director of HR in Little Rock and says, basically says Humphrey's guilty of reverse racial discrimination, that he's, you know, taking his whatever out on white officers. Um, but as it turns out, um, as the investigation was going on, she had donated to the GoFundMe of one of the officers whose firing she was investigating. Uh, and when her email to the HR director was leaked, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm an impartial investigator and I send a preliminary, an email with preliminary conclusions to the person who hired me, and that gets leaked to the press while the investigation is ongoing, I'm, I'm angry, right? Like I don't, that, that jeopardizes the investigation. Well, she touted the leaked email reports on Facebook and directed all of her Facebook people to go read the article. She defended the officer who was fired on Facebook and she directed her Facebook followers to go donate to his GoFundMe. Uh, you know, this is the very person who is supposed to be impartially investigating all of this. Um, same with an internal, there's another internal affairs investigation about Humphrey. That investigator also donated to this officer's GoFundMe. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, I think what it shows is just how entrenched and embedded kind of the power structure in Little Rock was. And Humphrey is a threat to that. And so everybody kind of pulled out all the stop. They have pulled out the stops to, uh, to make sure that, you know, he's not successful. Give so us a who's, little. Who's coordinating this? Is yeah, this yeah. a police union thing, so the, or yeah. is this? A, a, I mean, I have, you 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 can't do this kind of thing in a fully distributed way. Somebody's yeah. somebody's got to be running it. Who's yeah. running it? So there are a couple of things. Um, uh, the two the two high ranking officers, I think, who are kind of behind this primarily are the two assistant chiefs who wanted Humphrey's job. They both applied for his job and did not get it. So he comes into the Little Rock Police Department with two of his three direct subordinates already. So can, I, <laughs> so can I, yeah, okay, so that's actually huge. So, but related to that, can you give us a little bit of exposition as you're doing this too, um, along, like where Humphrey totally comes from and why he upset the establishment in Little Rock? Because it sounds like it's not just that he's a reformer and he's black. It sounds like he's an outsider and yeah. Yeah, I think there's so he, he started in Texas um, and I get into his background a little bit. Um, uh, he was hired initially or he initially applied with the Dallas Police Department and was uh, turned down because they told him he was too nice to become a police officer. Uh, he ends up in Fort Worth where he says, you know, he gets into That's trouble. Like the most depressing his... thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, he ends up in Fort Worth where he um, runs into problems because he, he it's the 80s and he's he's hearing officers you know use the n-word over the radio you know in staff meetings he complains about it and you know that doesn't make him particularly popular you know he, officers are slow to respond when he needs backup uh so he ends up in arlington texas and arlington uh, the arlington police department has kind of a history and tradition of producing these kind of reformist um you might say progressive police leaders who go on to lead other departments and he rises through the ranks there, ultimately gets hired to become the police chief in Lancaster, Texas, uh, and then gets hired uh, to be chief in Norman, uh, Oklahoma. Um, Lancaster, you know, he had very little problems. It's a pretty small department, a small, small city. Norman, you know, he runs into a little bit of resistance, but he ultimately kind of wins people over. I, I interviewed former colleagues in Norman. And one interesting thing is, you know, after he left Norman, and during the George Floyd protest, there was this debate over the whole defund movement, which led to a recall petition against the mayor there. 
And people on both sides of, of that, that fight and Norman both had nothing but good things to say about Humphrey, which made me think that, you know, um, it was hard to find any colleague in one of his former places of employment uh, who had complaints about him. Uh, then he comes to Little Rock and all of a sudden within a year, you know, he's allegedly sexually harassed 12 women. He's having an affair with a woman with whom he's trying to get a high paying job in the department. He's swearing at people, slamming doors, retaliating. And it seems like a pretty dramatic, you know, personality change in someone to happen within a year. Uh, and so that's, you know, that, I think that I took that as pretty strong evidence that the allegations, you know, I probably wouldn't withstand a little scrutiny. And the more I looked into them, more that proved to be correct. Um, so it's the, 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 these two assistant chiefs who wanted his job. One thing about Little Rock, uh, the police department, the union represents um, every, every officer for collective bargaining purposes, they represent sergeants and lower, but for in terms of representation, if you're facing disciplinary action, uh, any, any officer in the department who pays dues can get union representation, excluding the chief. So everybody but the chief. And what that means is that if you get an outsider who comes in and wants to implement some reforms and he gets resistance, which any outsider who wants to implement reforms is going to get, he has to try to implement those reforms with a command staff that's going to be pretty hostile to him. And that makes it really, really difficult for outsiders to get anything done. And that's why, you know, the first black chief in Little Rock basically was run out of town after five years. You know, they, the union in that case took out a billboard with this picture on it. They sent uh, officers to the airport uh, in street clothes to tell when there's a conference in town to tell people the city wasn't safe and they should just find a plane and go back home. Um, I have multiple officers tell me about that. There's the affair with Jesus. the Jesus. Um, and so, you know, the, it's thin the blue line indeed. Thin, so thin that it can like meet, like it can like do the bobbing and weaving necessary to discriminate based on race. Right. And over the years, you know, they, they've, um, the union has represented white officers when they bring these reverse discrimination suits against these reformist chiefs. I asked, you know, the 20 black officers that I interviewed 20 plus for the article, they could think of a single time that the union has represented a black officer in a traditional discrimination suit. And to one, everyone laughed when I asked that question. Um, so there's a, you know, the union as a, it's a good old boy system. And in fact, one of the chiefs who replaced one of the reformist chiefs proudly said that he was going to, we were going to bring back the good old boy system when he was named chief. So you've got, you're describing a relationship between senior management minus the chief and the union that's pretty antithetical to any conventional idea of what a union yeah. is and what it does, right? It's basically a union co-opted by the sub-chief senior management or maybe sub-chief senior management co-opted by the union. Um, and what they all have in common is whiteness. Is that is, is that overstating it's, it? Or it's is overstating that a little fair? in that one of the assistant chiefs who wanted Humphrey's job is black and, and who sued him. Um, now, if you talk to other black officers, they will say that the reason why that assistant chief is popular with the union is because he has, has spent the last several years of his career sort of advocating against black officers. So he one point said, you know, there, there's a there's a black police union in Little Rock also, which rose out of kind of necessity because the white union wasn't representing black officers. And this assistant chief who's black um, tried to dissolve the union or basically told them that they should merge with the FOP. 
So it's not, you know, there are complications to the kind of racial narrative, but it's one of those sort of exceptions, exception that proves the rule kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So can I can I also just add, uh, I think we've talked, you and I have talked about this before. I've talked about it on the show, which is just that like in my time briefly of being clerking in federal court um, and the number of discrimination claims that I heard and like reading through like fact patterns. And when I, this actually was really interesting to do it in the district court on a motion to dismiss and then to see what actually goes to trial and goes to a jury and then makes its way or like makes its way to like the, the circuit court. Um, what you said before about like discrimination and like these types of kind of like things that you would call just like, it's so incredible that they like, they really are, even if they go all the way to trial are like so thin like most of the, I mean, there's just huge amounts of doubt about what is meant by any of these kind of complaints, about, about like by, by statements, um, how much of things are based on race versus like people just don't like this person, yeah. um, things like that. And so like, I just want to say that like this type of like, what's really damn, but like I say that, <laughs> part of why I say that was like, I was sitting in front of a number of cases that were nine fucking years old and yeah. it cost police departments X number of dollars to defend or to, to defend had cost like the person making the claim X number of dollars to bring. And then still there was no resolution on these facts, like when yeah. they were kind of like, you know, and like, but what I'm trying to say is like, that's what that is why it is such like even just making the allegations is such an incredible threat because it is just so costly and if you get down to it people will take the rubber to the road and and kind of like you know make their gamble with discovery yeah. well yeah well, so, we haven't seen in none of the reverse discrimination claims that i know of have been successful they were all thrown out uh in federal court uh, a number of the Traditional reverse, uh, traditional discrimination claims were settled uh, by the city, but I, you know I will say this. I mean, if you look through kind of the court filings, you know there's some pretty damning uh, stuff in there. Um, but the uh, what was I going to say? Lost my train of thought. So next question. Before before we go to audience questions, I want to ask you about the resolution of this thing. Is yeah. he is Humphrey still there? Is his he has he, there has he been thoroughly demoralized and ousted? Uh, what is the state of play right now? So he's still there. Uh, he's still sort of adamant that he has no intention to leave. Um, thus far, the mayor has stood beside him, uh, although I was told that the mayor was not happy with Humphrey talking to me for the story. Um, but he also kind of felt he had to get his side of this, these things, this out there. Um, but, you know, the mayor's up for re-election, um, and I think it's probably safe to say that if he loses, Humphrey will not be the police chief anymore. There's also, um, you know, there's among the city directors, which is what Little Rock calls its city council, um, you know, there there's a sizable minority that aren't happy with him. Um, there have been two scheduled votes of no confidence, which has never happened before in Little Rock. Both times they were withdrawn at the last minute, but that What's they were that? scheduled says something. What's the and crime rate like? in Little Rock, just also just- It's like, gone up it under Humphrey like it has in every decent sized city in the country. I don't think it's gone up more than in other cities. Um, 
And, you know, because of the pandemic, it's quirky. You know, there are some areas where it's higher than other cities of its size, some areas where it's lower. Um, but, you know, the, 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 um, what I kind of find really striking was just the uh, absolute sort of emptiness of the allegations when you actually start looking into them. And, um, you know, before you take questions, I do want to talk about it because I think it's it's really. No, no, I was actually going to before we were I think we're going to wait a few minutes to take questions. But I was going to say also I wanted you to talk about the source you bird. Yeah, so that's what so, I was. Yeah, that's, that's okay, so that's what you're going to talk about. Ben, also, did we cut you off? Did you have a question to follow up on? No. Okay, sorry. I have one more question, but okay. it can wait. Let's talk so, about the burned source first. So it was a guy named Chris Burks. He's the one who filed almost all of the lawsuits against Humphrey. And, um, you know, so, of course, I reached out to him uh, last year, over a year ago now. And uh, he agreed to an interview off the record uh, with the with the sort of understanding that after that background sort of interview, I would then send him questions over email that he could answer on the record. And so I started talking to him on, in, in our off the record agreement, which I'm going to violate now. And I'll tell you why. Um, so, you know, anytime I'm interviewing a hostile source off the record, I've had, you know, in the past, I've noticed that they will use your off the record agreement as kind of a weapon to try to lie to you, to throw you off the story because they know that they can't be held accountable because it's off the record. Or they think they can't be held accountable. Um, yeah. <laughs> Binding legal agreement, though. Exactly. So, you know, yeah, even like... as a journalist, uh, if a source lies to you, you're no longer bound by that agreement. And so, Burks, uh, we had one of the most surreal conversations I've ever had as a journalist with a source. He opened the, the, our conversation by by flattering me by telling me that he that the I and Dave Weigel are his two favorite journalists, which. It may be true of Weigel, but I did not believe that about me at all. Um, he claimed that he was, you know, voted for Barack Obama. He's a progressive. He told me about all the civil rights legislation. Did you get his voting records? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was such a strange way to start an interview, right? Just throwing all this sort of uh, puffery at me. Um, so, you know, anytime I interview a hostile source, one way I try to test their credibility is I ask them questions that I already know the answer to, right? And if they are honest with me that I know I can at least sort of trust them going going forward a little bit. If they lie to me, then I know you know that I'm I'm dealing with somebody who's willing to lie to me. And Burks failed that test you know right off the bat. Um, so he starts you know rattling off the names of all these women who he claimed were going to bring sexual harassment charges against Humphrey. I knew that some of them weren't true because I had talked to them. Um, and you know he would say things like, oh, so so the, the woman who had, with the hostile work complaint. A work environment complaint, right? The one who said that the lawsuit had completely mischaracterized it. So he names her as one of the women who were going to complain against Humphrey. Uh, and I said, well, I, I actually talked to her and he said that she said that's you completely mischaracterized what happened in your lawsuit. And so he went from saying, you should talk to this woman. She'll confirm what I'm saying, thinking I hadn't talked to her yet, at which point I said I did talk to her and she's contradicting you, at which point he says, well, She's just she's she's just tell, lying to you because she's black and she feels like she has to defend Humphrey because he's black, right? So he, he changes his story in mid conversation about this this particular police officer. Um, so it kind of continues that way, and um, you know, I, at this point, I know he's lying to me, but I'm not going to burn him at this point because whatever he's a source who lied to me that happens a lot. Then something really strange. Can you just happens. define burning for the audience? Burning a source is when you 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 name the source who gave you bad information because they gave you bad information because they were trying to mislead you and they don't deserve anonymity at that point. 
I would uh, say that that's it's I, I would say that burning a source. Well, I would just just to just burning it doesn't it doesn't have to be for noble and for, for reasons like that. You can burn a source, uh, even if they didn't give you bad information. Burning a source it, is revealing, revealing your identity, the, the right? Identity of the yeah. source whom you, who you promised, promised confidentiality. confidentiality, right? Exactly. But there is a, a understanding a that you promise confidentiality in order for them to provide you truthful information. Right. And if somebody turns around and uh, lies to you, or as also happens, lies about your interactions elsewhere, uh, they're violating the contract under which you right. agreed to anonymity. Right. Right. And that's and this that's so that's exactly what happened here. So not only did he lie to me in our conversation, and then find out that he had emailed uh, Humphrey's attorneys and claimed. So during our conversation, he told me some. He gave me some information that he said came out in a deposition that week, and the deposition was sealed. And so he told me he was violating the protective order on this deposition because he think he thought I needed to know, right? And he said, you know, I'm going to try to get the the seal lifted. And I'm going to get you a transcript so you can see, and you'll see that it confirms what I'm saying. He never tried to get the seal, the seal lifted because I, I don't I don't think he he didn't he never had any intention. Knew what that would entail, <laughs> right. yes. <laughs> so, so instead he tells me the stuff that he he admits to me was in the deposition and the deposition was sealed. So he's admitting to me that he's violating court order as he's telling me this, right? Um, I felt later find out that what he tells me, surprise surprise, is completely untrue. So I'll give you what it was. So Humphrey was accused of having Chris Burks Humphrey accused Humphrey of having an affair with this woman who. Had, was applying for a position at the LRPD, an administrative position, right? Yikes. And the evidence for this, Humphrey is friends with this woman. The evidence is that his car was at her house early one morning, right? And and a, a, a LRPD cruiser caught it on its dash cam, right? Humphrey, there's a good reason why he was there. The woman's car had been stolen the night before. He was bringing some documents by. She confirmed all this. So this all goes, goes big in the Little Rock press, right? Police chief having an affair with woman, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they both deny the affair. Burks tells me that in the deposition, Humphrey... He's married? Is he married? Yes, he's married. Yeah. Okay. Um, Burks tells me that in the deposition, Humphrey admitted that he was at this woman's house again and that he lied about being at her house. And of course, the clear implication is there is that the, that the affair continued, that he lied to cover it up. So I asked Humphrey about this and he says, yeah, I was at her house. He said, we're friends. He's like, I was having dinner at her house with my wife and a male friend of hers. It was a dinner party. And somebody, this blogger who's been sort of a, an antagonist to Humphrey, texted him while he was at the house with a photo of this truck parked in the driveway said, saying, is this you? And Humphrey says, I lied to him. I told him, no, that's not my truck. And he's like, because it was clear someone was following or stalking my wife and I, and I wasn't going to admit to them where I was, right? So Burks had characterized this this testimony that came out in a sealed deposition is like damning information where Humphrey admits to having this affair. And actually what it was, was he and his wife were having dinner with this woman and a male friend, you know, and this blogger, you know, was sort of stalking them. And Burks tells me this, you know, no thinking that our, our conversation is protected by the, the confidentiality agreement or the, the, the off the record agreement. So he's trying to throw me off the story saying, you know, basically, if you run with the story, you're going to be really embarrassed because here, here's some information I have, you know, that's really going to embarrass you if you let this out. So what a, what a fucking idiot. But yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Sorry. So, <laughs> well, so not only does he lie to me about our conversation, though, he then lies to Humphrey's attorneys. He tells them that I told him things in our conversation 
that Humphrey told me that violated the protective order, right? Well, that's not true because I hadn't actually talked to Humphrey since before those depositions. But then Burks goes further. He files a motion in court for contempt, asking for the court to find Humphrey in contempt for violating the protective order. And in his motion, he claims that I told him this information that implicates Humphrey for violating protective order. So he's lying about our conversation in a court filing, uh, thinking that he's going to be protected by the off the record agreement. So that's why I, I wrote a column for the post saying, laying it all out and saying, you know, my business here isn't is. Humphrey. It's you're using my agreement with you to lie in a court filing. And he was found in contempt uh, and, and Good. found a, a violated his legal ethics for that. So I want to I want to ask you about uh, one possible conclusion from this is that when we see a rash of harassment suits against a person, uh, we should be skeptical of them that, you know, like this time it's Humphrey, but, you know, sometimes it's uh, Harvey Weinstein. Right. Or um, and that, um, you know, now I'm not. I'm not here protesting for the innocence of Harvey Weinstein, but I am saying when there are powerful people uh, who oppose the position that somebody is taking in an industry or in a position, weaponizing civil rights law is actually can be a pretty viable strategy. And so my question is, did this story teach you anything about when to be skeptical of a, you know, like I'm really comfortable saying 22 women are not making up sexual harassment and sexual assault claims against Donald Trump. Right. And, you know, X number, I don't know, I haven't followed the Weinstein case or not making that up. But, you know, there's a there's a, a little it gets a little complicated because somebody could say, hey, 15 women in the Arkansas Police Department are not making up you know, even if one of them is making it up, you know, 15 of them aren't making up sexual harassment uh, or or hostile work environment claims against Humphreys. Does it teach you anything about about when your bullshit detector should and shouldn't fire when a prominent person suddenly faces a rash of claims? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's case specific. I think, it, I, I, you know, I don't think there should be a hard and fast rule. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm not crazy about the believe all women all the time approach um, because we have seen false allegations. But, you know, in this case, you know, there were four four women who brought some kind of charge that was characterized as sexual harassment. Burks then claimed it was 12 when it was only four. And he, you know, specifically named women to me who I knew denied ever having any, you know, bad interaction with Humphrey. Um, and then if you look at the four women who made the accusations, they're all part of the same kind of social circle, which was kind of headed by this assistant chief who was suing Humphrey at the time. So, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't draw any sort of broad kind of lessons or, or, or you know, rules from it. You know, I think you, you do. But I, I yeah, I, I mean, as a particularly as a criminal justice for somebody who's been reporting on this stuff for a long time, I think, you know, accusations you need to look at the context look at the credibility of the people making the accusations look at the incentives of the people making accusations i think all that matters definitely word up yeah just I, do the work that's yeah. the but like okay so i'm lesson. going 
so i mean the lesson no actually ben i think that the lesson is like is that like we have moments like this in history and time in which we reflexively rely on norms and shaming and like ostracization like all of these types of things to kind of move the law forward or get the law to recognize things that it should have been recognizing all along like taking sexual assault seriously taking domestic violence against women seriously taking police violence against like black men seriously like all of or like or or police malfeasance seriously and we have these normal that doesn't mean that we have to rely on those types of norm enforcement mechanisms forever nor should we they are absolutely shit measures like and they're the last resort of like no, but, pretty, but there's like, this problem that the, i'm just speaking from the user point of view right the user no, no. of the app you pick up your your twitter in the morning and you see your Arkansas Democrat Gazette story saying four women file sexual harassment claims against police chief. And you need to make. Yes. You need a heuristic to make a judgment. Is this bullshit? Or is this part of the Me Too thing? Yeah. Right. And like we're humans. And so we don't. Um, you know, we, we have an urge to apply a rule. And no, I know what I, know. I, I take Radley to be saying, the rule is that there is no rule. The rule is that you actually <laughs> no. have to look at the facts. No, you didn't let me finish. I was going to say like, that is exact. Like, so what I was going to say is like, you said word up, like, it's like, what did you say? Like, let's, you have to, it's like, you have to look at the specifics or you have to look at, like, it's like really hard. Like, that's something, it, it felt that's what you said. But my point is like, yes, it is really hard, but it's not just for individual people to determine. It's for individual people to know that there is no fucking heuristic for claims like this. Right. That yeah, is exactly the thing right. that I'm trying to say is like, right. there is no heuristic for these types of claims. They are arduous, terrible things that like have to be slowly and best litigated through some type of procedural transparent mechanism with accountability like a court system which is like the shittiest but best thing that we have and it's much better than a court of public opinion precisely for this reason because the second that someone sees it as a tool to twist against a person they don't like they will do that and it becomes not like a righteous hammer it becomes like an unwieldy hammer that is like swinging and hitting everyone in the head and so like my point is basically just that like there are things that we have and they're called the rule of law and this is like actually like why as i was describing before these are really hard questions that you could go through nine years of litigation to try to figure out and like even in that case you don't have like a totally clear set of facts that points in one specific way or another under the law. Um, and so like, I think that, yeah, so this is not one of those, but like, I, I mean, look, I think, I think it's, I think believe all women is a response to a time when it was believe none of the women and laugh it off and wink and nod yes. and keep it under the rug. Like it's, you know, we don't we shouldn't believe every woman who makes every accusation but we should take every woman who makes an accusation seriously and look into the accusation and you know treat it you know for a, a the serious alleged incident that it is yeah yeah totally um mike godwin you are not on camera but i can hear your voice 
Sorry, I'm gonna turn a light on because it got dark. Yeah, yeah, you keep like going. You're fine. Don't worry. Mike, go ahead and ask your question. Sure. Uh, so I actually have two questions, but they're kind of related. Can I go? Can I just say them all at once? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The worst that'll happen is we'll cut you off brutally. It's not that long of a <laughs> series of questions. Um, so the first question is: Isn't the problem set with isn't the problem with Little Rock's police just an exemplar of the problems with American police culture generally? And is there a generalizable policy or legal solution or set of solutions that would address not only Little Rock's problems, but those of so many other cities? The the reason I ask this question, by the way, is that you could this could have been your story, Radley, could have been set in any other city. And it would not have seemed weird to me right. to have all the details that you've related. Yep. Uh, so I mean, it, yeah, it, it has, has happened. happened. Yeah, I think it has happened in many other places. Anyway, I'll stop now and just let you take those yeah. questions. Thanks. Um, so yeah, I, I, I list a bunch of cities that this is the other cities where this has happened, where literally you have a black police chief who was been accused of everything from sexual harassment to retaliation, anger issues. Um, and, you know, in most cases, the, the allegations have not panned out. And Kansas, the head of the, the state police, um, faced these allegations, staked an investigation and found that basically it was, um, you know, an effort by uh, people, uh, officers who, who, you know, he had disciplined, uh, didn't like the fact that they'd been disciplined. Um, there was a black, uh, there's a, currently a lawsuit from the black police chief, former black police chief in Henderson, Nevada, who was hired as a reformer. Uh, brought down sort of by the union, and she's now, you know, alleging that they uh, made all these sort of false allegations against her. Um, so it does, yeah, it is happening uh, in other places. As for, you know, what we can do, you know, I think, the, I think the first thing that needs to be done is that we need to diminish the power of these unions. Um, you know, in Little Rock, the black officers don't feel like the FOP represents them, and yet the city grants the FOP as the sole uh, recognized collective bargaining unit for police officers in the city. And that's that's a problem. Can I ask a question that is a little bit ignorant about police unions and unions in general? Is is the is the is the anti-police union movement mm -hmm. like um, linked to an anti-union, like anti-teamster, anti-union kind of sentiment generally? Or is it kind of its own thing? because of the politics around police. It's its own thing. I mean, I think you, you, um, you know, as a libertarian, I think there are similar arguments you can be made that can be made against other public sector unions, although obviously the concept, the stakes are much different, um, but the, the incentives I think are similar. Um, but no, I think private sector unions, I, I, you know, I think private sector unions do a lot of good. Um, I think there are problems with some of them also, but um, you know, as a libertarian, I always like to point out to my fellow libertarians that it was, you know, a union that brought down communism in Poland, right? Um, so, um, you know, I, I, but I think police unions are unique. And one of the ways that they're unique is in that when a city doesn't have the budget to, say, guarantee raises or uh, guarantee, you know, better pensions, they compensate by giving um, the officers themselves more control over discipline. They make it easier for bad officers to not be disciplined or to stay on the, stay on the force. Um, they make it harder uh, for the city to you know win terminations. And this has happened in Little Rock a lot. In Little Rock, I've never seen a police department that has been where internal policy and personnel decisions are so dictated by litigation. Um, and what happens is an officer will get you know a white officer will get away with something. 
some terrible, you know, incident. And, you know, seven years later, a black officer will do something similar and get fired. And then he'll sue and say, well, you let this white officer get away with it and they'll win and they'll win their jobs back or it'll happen in a reverse reverse order. And what happens is you get this sort of race to the bottom for bad behavior. So once one officer has been cleared for a particular type of incident, it clears the way for every other officer who's ever accused of something similar. But isn't it a it seems to me like a bit of a spectrum because police unions there's always been a divide in the way we understand unions between public sector unions and private sector unions and you know police unions teachers unions uh uh um corrections officer unions they they raise these all of the questions that you just described in a way that, you know, unionizing Amazon or a hotel does not, except that the police forces are also, uh, as are the corrections officers unions, which don't get nearly enough scrutiny, in my view, um, uh, they also have the power of life and death over people in their communities. But it's, I'm not sure the issue is different in kind from the issue of, you know, teachers unions. Uh, it's just an issue of degree, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stakes are different, I think. But but yeah, I think the incentives are very similar. Thank you for explaining that. I didn't mean to be obtuse. I just like I just like no, kind I of just, all of a sudden just like kind of like I was like oh like I wonder if like these carry over. But anyways, Richard Wattenberger, it's so nice to see you. Hello, nice to see you. Um, so a little context for my question. Uh, first of all, I, so I'm in Philadelphia, and so which is a majority minority city, majority black city, um, and uh, you know we have problems with the obviously we have problems with the FOP here as well, um, and um, it, it's to the extent that to the extent that it becomes fodder for GOP politicians outside of the. Uh, of the city to um, you know, to run us down. I'm just wondering what in Little Rock how this how this story was covered, and if you have a sense of what sense you have of how the people in Little Rock, um, especially in, in the metro area, especially outside of the city limits, how they viewed the uh, the police in this situation. Does this confirm, for example, prejudices that they that some people have about Little Rock, or uh, you know what is the What's the general sentiment there? Yeah, so I'm not, it's hard for me to say what the general sentiments sort of in Little Rock or the metro areas. I mean, I mean, I don't think there's polling that's kind of that geographically um, uh, precise. Um, you know, we'll see, there, there is a, an election, mayoral election coming up, and I think the, the, the police department has been in the news enough that that's going to be a central issue in the campaign. So, I, you know, I think that's probably where we'll find out how this is resonating. Um, as for local coverage, man, I got to tell you, like, um, with the exception of the Alt Weekly, um, which has been pretty skeptical of the union and the claims against Humphrey, um, it's been pretty uh, uh, anti-Humphrey to the point of almost parody. Um, and I'll give you a good example. I, I tweeted about this the other day. It, it wasn't in the article, but um, so we'll go back to our friend Chris Burks. Um, he um, Burks filed a, a, a generous email. use of friend there, Radley. <laughs> um, he uh, he he sent an email to the Arkansas Attorney General, telling him that he need, that they needed to investigate Humphrey for this alleged woman he was having an affair with, who was trying to get a job for. And he got, from what I understand, uh, and I also I'll add that I haven't seen it, but um, from what I understand, he got sort of a rote response saying, 
you know, thank you. We'll look into this. Um, he then goes to local radio or local TV station, KATV, and tells them that there's an attorney, a state attorney general investigation into Humphrey, uh, citing his email and the response to it, right? Um, they then run the story sort of uncritically. Burke is the Burks is the only source that there's any such investigation happening. The very next day, Burks then emails the city attorney and the city directors saying, basically using the fact that there's an attorney general investigation into Humphrey as leverage uh, for his demands that the city turn over, you know, documents and information and conduct their own investigations into Humphrey. And for the, for his sort of evidence that there's an attorney general investigation, he cites the KATV story for which he is the only source, right? <laughs> Sorry, so, that's just like, I mean, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> 19 months later, nobody I talked to has heard anything about this investigation. Nobody's been interviewed. There's been no press release, no indictments, nothing. Crazy. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, I think, I, and, and my tweet thread about this, I talk about, you know, local journalists, I think they have this kind of symbiotic relationship with local law enforcement, particularly in a very, you know, relatively small city like Little Rock. They need those people to do their jobs. And so they tend to not be skeptical of them. Um, a guy like, you know, Burks or like the FOP or the assistant chiefs, they have long existing relationships with local media that they can exploit. A guy like Humphrey is an outsider. He comes in. He doesn't have those relationships. He's also not allowed to talk on the record to defend himself. So it becomes very easy for these people to kind of leak information to local media to these through these existing relationships. And there's no kind of pushback. And so there were some ridiculous allegations. I mean, there was one big story about hum how Humphrey had run a red light because a truck that looked like his had gone was caught on a traffic camera running through a red light. No effort to verify it. You know, he, he they end up pulling the story when he proves that he was in another side of the city. At the I was time. just going to say, like, yeah. that sounds like a defamation suit waiting to happen. So this is this is a really, really important huh. uh, point that, you know, the, the smaller the jurisdiction, but it's true at the federal level, too. You know, if you're if you work at in counterterrorism reporting, you have people who you've interacted with in the bureau uh, in as repeat players in investigations. And those are people that you have good reason to, they've provided you good information in the past. They do briefings with reporters uh, and you have their number. And so when something happens, the first thing you do is you pick up the phone and call them or you send them a text or whatever. And this is really magnified when you shrink the situation down to a, um, uh, and that it is profoundly biasing when those people are, you know, not chasing terrorists, but going after their bosses. Yeah. And it's I, just you know, prof profoundly biasing. I mean, I get really infuriated with local reporters, particularly TV news reporters, you know, do these kind of fawning pieces or they, they take an accusation unskeptically and run with it. I do kind of have to remind myself, though, as somebody who's a reporter with more of a national focus, like it's very easy for me to parachute into a place like Little Rock, not really care who I piss off because I don't need these people as sources, you know, for to do my job on a day to day basis. And so, yeah. you know, as much as I wish journalists to be more skeptical and, and more, and I think more importantly and less corruptly than that, that because you're parachuting in, you haven't had 
10 years of interaction with that person that causes you to build trust and makes you uh, a little bit blind to the fact that that person is now not giving you objective information about a case that he or she is working, but is actually sliming somebody. Yeah. It's so, like, it's just so true. I will... Um... And this is where competition would help, you know, if there were three or four papers. But, 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 like, but this is, like, I just want to say this is, like, not just in reporting. It's not just in policing. It's not just in the courts. It's, like, I used to, like, when I was at ABC News and I started, and I was straight out of college, there, I didn't think that they were doing a very rigorous job in checking to make sure they got the rights for a lot of the photographs that they were using. In fact, I knew that they weren't checking at all. And I like kind of like said this to my boss and she was like, we have to work with these people every day. Like, don't like, don't, don't, don't piss off the graphics department. Right. Like, don't piss off the graphics department at abcnews.com because you're like, we have to work with them every day. And I mean, like there was no huge scandal, but it was like, it's all politics all the way down. Like you just, you're going to have, like, you don't want to like challenge these people. And like, you come in with like, you're 21, 22 years old and they think you're an asshole and you think they're idiots. And like, you know. Nobody nobody um, wants to make their job harder for no particular, well, even for a good reason, <laughs> much less. Yeah. yeah, and they've gotten into a way of doing it. And like, yeah, it's like, that's the story. So uh, David, Great question to kind of to take us a little bit outside the scope of the talk, but it's a great question. It's one I always want to ask Bradley, so I'm selfishly asking you to ask it for me. <laughs> okay. All right, I will do it. Uh, so since you've written a lot about uh, asset forfeiture, I was wondering if you can provide an update on whether states or federal or the federal government has made progress on, on dealing with asset forfeiture. Uh, so there have been some successes. Um, I should confess I'm a little bit behind on this because I've been working on a few other issues. But um, I do know that over the last five or six years, we've seen a number of states uh, pass laws requiring a conviction uh, in order for police to uh, uh, seize property, uh, you know, through asset forfeiture laws. Um, you know, the Trump administration, the Obama administration made this sort of gesture at reform where they said there's this policy called uh, adoption where um or equitable sharing where uh, if a state has passed restrictive asset forfeiture laws um a state police the police department in that state can say uh, if they have a case where they think there's going to be a lot of property to be forfeited they can call up say the local dea branch or local fbi and say hey can you federalize this case and they can just sort of send maybe one officer over or sometimes not even that uh, and then it becomes a federal case which is governed by federal rules which in a lot of states give the police more power uh to seize property and then the federal government takes 20 percent and the rest of the 80 percent goes back to the local police department the obama administration said um you know in order to do that the federal agency has to actually partic actively participate in the investigation you can't just sort of call them up and federalize it and that you know affected i think i'd tried to crunch the numbers and it, maybe it affected maybe five or 6% of forfeiture cases overall, but at least it was kind of a gesture and it was admitting that, okay, we recognize that this is a very unjust policy. Uh, the Trump administration then revoked even that modest reform uh, and Biden, the Biden administration has yet to re-implement it or any other sort of reforms. So there's a little bit of backsliding there. Um, you know, I would say at the state and local level, I think things are definitely getting better. Uh, 
unfortunately, last week, uh, there was one counterpoint where Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, uh, announced her sort of crime fighting strategy. And one of her two sort of policies that she mentioned was setting minimum goals for asset forfeiture in the city, which, you know, I mean, we there have been studies done in Chicago. I think Reason Magazine did one and found, you know, that the, I think the average amount of money confiscated in a forfeiture case, I think, I can't, I, I want to say it was under $1,000. Uh, and of course, it's in, you know, all the kind of poorest, blackest areas of the city. Um, and so, you know, it's a policy that's both regressive and the idea, you know, the whole point of asset forfeiture is that we're going to rob these big kingpins of ill-gotten gains. And when your average forfeiture is less than $1,000, it kind of shoots that argument to hell. Um, but generally, I think things are getting better. There've been, there's been a little backsliding. though. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. We are. Uh, so I beat you to it, Ben. You I, did. I, I was literally I saying but we I, were going to leave it there. But I, well, you I wanted got to it. Really Bradley, did you see that meme go? At, well, that wasn't a meme, but did you see the link going around of that shitty, shitty team of cops that had like taken oh, like God. a pound of stems off of like some and, poor guy and, and like and, and one dollar like, bills and, laid out in a row? Yeah, the, like the one dollar bills laid out on the table is like seventy four dollars and twenty four cents or something. Um, I just was like, I just was. I was hoping you'd seen it and enjoyed it. I I knew you probably had, but I just. Wanted I was. To I was. I was also enjoying the the riffs on it, uh, which was. Yeah, like, it was like. Oh, I'm so glad those guys got dragged. It was amazing, but. Ben. We will be back tomorrow. We have no idea who the guest is going to be. Maybe it'll be a guinea pig. Maybe it'll be an emu. Ben, remember when I asked you if I should get two naked guinea pigs as pets for uh, an adopt and, and, and I objected on grounds no, that they're rodents. And now you're wearing them on your shirt? No, uh, okay, this is a clothed like guinea pig. It is... Um, it's a clothed guinea pig, yes. It's um, not a naked guinea pig. I don't do nudity <laughs> in rodents. Um, okay. That's inappropriate, Kate. Um, that'll be 22 hours and 55 minutes from now. And until then, KK? Uh, we don't have fun anymore. Uh, but we do have Riley Belko's incredible, very long, but really really worth the read i hope you kind of are thinking of turning this one into your next book friend uh to talk about later on your next time you're on the show uh peace in the intercept that we have linked to throughout the day and i'm throwing in one more time into the chat and thank you so much for joining us friend it's great to see you merry christmas thanks for having me on take care guys Bye.